Hi, I want to welcome you to the Professional Enrichment Seminar. My name is Stephen Spence. I'm the Deputy Principal Academic here at Table, and I am um, responsible for teaching New Testament. And so it is an exceedingly great pleasure for me to have um, Dr. Scott McKnight here um, to be um, speaking to the pastors, church leaders, and students today and across the week to be um, spending time with our postgraduate students. Um, I've, um, um, you may recognize from the accent that I was um, born in Scotland. And so the fact that I have bought his books and not just taken them from the library is an indication <laughs> of the quality of their worth. And so I, I, own, a, I own a number of um, Scott's books. And um, being a New Testament person... Um, the great thing about reading Scott's books is that those are the things I would have thought and written myself if I had time, but why do, why do I need to when I've got someone leading the way? And so um, you buy a book and it saves you all that time. So that's just um, excellent. Um, we are particularly pleased to um, welcome Dr. Scott McKnight because it continues Tabor's Adelaide's practice of trying to get some of the leading scholars in the world here to Adelaide to speak to the church leaders, pastors, and students at the college. Um, Dr. McKnight is a recognized authority on the historical Jesus, early Christianity, and the New Testament. So that um, covers um, um, a wide range of things. He's a much sought-after speaker, and I understand that he spends the American summer um, writing his books. And so the fact that he's here um, is a um, pleasure for us. It may make life difficult for you, getting everything done. But we appreciate the fact that you've been willing to come and do that. But Scott is a well-regarded speaker. He's a prolific writer, a teacher, and equipper of the church. He has just been appointed to the position of Professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Chicago. Um, he and his wife live in Libertyville, Illinois. Libertyville, isn't that so American? I mean, where else would you find a town committed to liberty except in the U.S.? I mean, maybe there's other ones, but Liberty, Illinois sounds like a really American spot to be. Um, He has two adult children and one grandchild. Um, Scott earned his PhD in 1986 at Nottingham University. Since then, he's written and edited over 20 books, many of them focused upon Jesus and faithfully following Jesus. Our library has over a dozen of those books, um, and it was only in preparing for this that I realized we didn't have them all. But um, within a couple of months, we'll have them all uh, in the library. Uh, with a number of them, uh, a number of the ones that we do have in the library are already assigned as textbooks in various subjects that we teach here. Scott's most recent book is the King Jesus Gospel, and that's going to be the focus of his time here with us. But he's also written um, recently a commentary on James. Perhaps his most famous book, maybe famous, is the Jesus Creed. Um, which is an opportunity to explore um, following after Jesus. And I think that's one of the distinctive things about Scott as a scholar. He's not just a scholar 
in an abstract sense, but his scholarship is always directed to helping individual Christians follow after Jesus better and to help the church be better followers of Jesus. And so it's that commitment to taking his learning and applying it to the um, individual Christians and to the church that I think is one of um, Scott's particular distinctives. He is also the author of perhaps the leading Christian blog in the world, and certainly, according to some measures, um, I don't know quite how they count all this, but according to some measures, he's the number one um, evangelical blogger um, with the Jesus Creed. And if you haven't yet um, got yourself a link to the um, Jesus Creed blog, um, I would encourage you to do that. There's um, um, lots of um, thoughtful information, some, some not-so-thoughtful stuff on... Um, baseball and stuff like that, but if you put that little bit aside for the moment, um, there's lots of um, um, really uh, good stuff, and if you don't read a lot of books, it's an excellent blog because he reviews them all uh, in great detail, and so it's almost, not quite, but almost as good as reading the books, and so you really should, you really should um, get onto his blog and um, be a regular reader off that. Now, I've told you that Scott has written lots of books. He's taught all around the world. But the last piece of information um, I think is uh, crucial. He is indeed being elected to the Hall of Honor in his college, a Baptist college that he did his um, Bachelor's uh, of Arts degree at, which is now called Cornerstone University. He was elected to the Hall of Honor not because... He is an international speaker of renown, not because he's written all these great books and taught um, people about Jesus, but because of his basketball accomplishments. <laughs> so all that and a basketball player as well. So we are looking forward to listening to you today and the students. And we've got um, perhaps our largest postgraduate um, class ever um, gathered, and so um, they'll have you um, be able to listen to you for the week. But for this day, we're looking forward to what you have to say. Thank you very much. Uh, I think they thought I was a basketball player, so they put this pulpit uh, up to my chin. I didn't play that position. Yeah, I think we'll move it down. If we knock it down, you got this? How does that work? Still, still pretty good now. Stephen, um, my grandpa is from Scotland. I knew you were. So it leads me to ask the question if you bought the books used. <laughs> And now have you sold them to the library? (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry. Maybe that means that I've had too much influence from the Dutch to ask that question. It's tipping just a bit. Here we go. Okay. 
Well, I'm really honored to be with you and excited about this day. Uh, I, I see my opportunity to uh, put the King Jesus Gospel book in context as we're here today. Uh, there will be repetition of what's in the book. I, I don't know any more than what's already there. Uh, some of it I, I would, uh, you know, I would like to explain in fuller compass, and so some of that will, will take place today. Uh, but what I would like to do throughout this session today is uh, ask questions like this. What is evangelism? And how would you define evangelism? Which leads to the question, what is the gospel? And how do you talk about the gospel? That, that's the question that I want to ask, or those are the questions. And I, I want you to feel free uh, during this, these three sessions today of interrupting me and saying that was a really dumb point, or uh, raising your hand and asking questions. Uh, I'm not used to just going all... I will talk as long as you let me. I grew up as a Baptist, and, and we're used to talking. Uh, we're not very good at listening as Baptists, but uh, we can talk and tell stories. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite happy for, as we go through, that you ask questions. If you, uh, if you think it wasn't clear... I'm quite happy to stop and talk about that. Um, so I, I would like to go through the day, uh, and we'll just stop at the appropriate times. It, it won't necessarily break naturally into three parts. Uh, it, I see it as one long rant or rave. Uh, so that, that, that will be the essence of what we're doing, and this will form the foundation for the class that we'll meet the rest of the week. Uh, well, I want to try to use these ideas to uh, examine where we are and have pushback about what I'm saying as well. So, so that's where we want to uh, head for the day. But I, uh, I, I have to say thanks to Graham Buxton and to Bruce and to Stephen for this phenomenal opportunity. Uh, it is really weird to change time zones. I don't even know how you describe a move from Chicago to South Australia, it's more than time zones. It's a, something else happens to the body beyond that. It's time zone chains on steroids. And, uh, but it's, it's a phenomenal opportunity for us. And uh, so I'm, uh, I, I've told, I told Graham, uh, I've always refused to teach D-Min courses uh, because they seem to be growing like uh, cancer in the United States. And every school is trying to get everybody to come teach these courses. But when Graham and Bruce wrote, I said, Chris, we've got to go do this. She said, but it's a D-Min course. You're going to have to be careful. And I said, I won't be saying anything about what I think. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm really glad. And, and Graham reminded me that I had said something about his book on my blog. So I had to find out what it was long ago, uh, what I had said about his book. But... Uh, I do write the blog for pastors and for church leaders, and I try to read books for pastors who are too busy to read some of these books. I really do. And if pu publishers love it, because I, I talk, they see it as publicity about their books. And, and seriously, I get between three and 400 free books a year uh, that come to my house, and I, I can't do it. You know, I can't. I just start throwing them. I, uh, some of them we just throw away. I don't, we don't have space for them. And if you would like to review some of these books, you just write me. I'll send you books to review uh, for, the, for the blog. And I'm, I'm happy to have other people writing books 
I don't think the publishers will send books to Australia. Uh, maybe they will if they think it's going to show up on the blog. But uh, that's what the blog is all about. So I'd like to get started with some of the options that we have, uh, how people understand the gospel. Um, the first word I would like to use, because I see an increasing interest in this word in understanding the gospel, is the word justice. Anyone who reads the Bible, which I do not presume to be the case with all Christians, anyone who reads the Bible knows that Moses' Torah is saturated with a vision of justice for the society of Israel. Justice is all over the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus, if you find the right parts of the book that aren't about the odd stuff. So justice is a major theme in the Bible, and I find a lot of my students at North Park and the emerging Christians that I've been connected with for 10 years uh, are very interested in the theme of justice in the Bible. You read Micah and his phenomenal statement in Micah 6, 6-8, which is the theme verse that is found in the middle of our campus at North Park University. Uh, to seek justice, um, to know God, these sorts of uh, visions. It's a part of the Bible. You cannot, you cannot encounter Jesus' kingdom vision in the Gospel of Luke particularly, but it's also found in Matthew, Mark, and John in different ways. You cannot encounter those books and that vision by Jesus without thinking justice is really important. And the book that is perhaps the most abused book in the history of the church, the book of Revelation, is actually saturated with a vision for justice. And yeah, it can be a little violent and scary at times in that book, but it is concerned with establishing once and for all a society characterized by shalom, by justice, by love. And so justice is at the core of what the Bible is all about. And anyone who defines the gospel and doesn't have justice uh, reverberating through the vision is missing the point. And this is very important for the next generation of Christians that I'm finding in the, in the United States today. They, they, uh, they are more concerned with uh, a society of justice, with doing good in the world, than they are with getting people saved. Justice really matters. And I, I wish you could be on a, uh, a Christian campus like North Park for a year and see what our students are doing. I mean, it is embarrassing to people my age. I mean, I grew up with the hippies, and we believed in peace, which meant not much, but, I mean, we were into it. My students are into justice, but they don't just talk about it and wear tie-dyed shirts and hang out on corners and criticize Vietnam. They are really into doing something. So I have students right now in Africa. Uh, a student named Amy knocked on my door one day and said, uh, we'd, we'd like you to take us to lunch. Okay. She said, we'd like you to pay. 
And we wanted to go to the Swedish restaurant, which is the nice restaurant on our campus. So I said, okay. So we go to camp, we go to the restaurant and she says to me that she and some of her friends are going to walk from Cape, Cape Town to Alexandria. And my first response was, do you know how dangerous this is? And she said to me, do you think God won't protect us? I thought, theology. I should have a better theology uh, if God calls. So they are right now, there. I think there's six of them. And they've got ragamuffin cars and they're traveling and they've made contacts for every 20 miles all the way through Africa. It took two years. And they are walking for water with, with, with the poor of the world. These are the sorts of people who are populating the church today. And when we want to talk about what kind of music we should use in worship services, they, they want to do something else. So uh, justice is important. And if you know the history of the church, you know about, do you know about St. Basil's New City, uh, where he actually created a society of justice in the 3rd and 4th century, uh, a brilliant society created around justice. And John Wesley was one of the very few revivalists in the history of the church who, who, who somehow was able to maintain uh, a gospel that concerned with justification, but at the same time create a society of justice. So John Wesley, I think, is a great combination. And I've ignored the Anabaptists who did everything well and right. Um, but I won't always be bringing them up. Walter Rauschenbusch was a great American theologian in New York City who single-handedly, in many ways, constructed the social gospel against which many evangelicals and fundamentalists reacted. But Rauschenbusch, if you've ever read any of his early books and early writings, uh, was one of the few who saw the combination of the gospel with justice, and it, it had to make a real difference uh, and he created, uh, it's called, what's it called, Hell's Kitchen? Is that what it was called in uh, downtown New York City? Um, Rauschenbusch. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was a phenomenal preacher in the United States. But what he did was take the gospel and say it has to manifest itself in racial justice. So he brought these two things together. Peter Gomez was, a, was the, pre, uh, the preacher chaplain, pastor of Harvard Memorial Church, and he understood the gospel largely in terms of justice. I believe that Brian McLaren's attractiveness to American Christians is connected to his vision for justice. Brian, from the beginning, wanted something different than what he was growing up with, which was Plymouth Brethrenism, and I think it all came to fruition when he wrote a book called Everything Must Change. I thought that was the climax of Brian's social vision, sort of a liberation theology and a social gospel all together. And Rob Bell's attractiveness in the United States uh, is not just his cool glasses. Uh, uh, Rob Bell is, had created a church. Uh, that was concerned with a full community of living out a vision of justice so that Christians were reaching into the community and caring about common problems that real people face. <clears throat> so justice is one of the words that has to be 
looked at. I believe it is completely inadequate to reduce the gospel to justice. I believe that the word justice has been connected in the Western world with freedom, Libertyville, the quintessential city in the United States is Centerville. The center of the universe is in Centerville, Iowa. And only in Iowa would they make those claims. But Libertyville. Yeah, I never thought of it about that, that way. But I've seen some funny named towns in Scotland as well. <laughs> My grandpa was from Fife. Um, fellowship and brotherhood is a part of the term as well uh, with justice. Equality becomes central to the meaning of the word justice when people in the West use it. And then along comes, I think, the central theme of the word justice when it is used by Westerners in the world today, and that is human rights. So freedom, brotherhood or fellowship, equality and rights. If you know the history of Western thinking, we're now talking about the French Revolution. And this is the fundamental problem I find when my students start to equate the word gospel with the word justice, is that it becomes Western liberalism. And I don't mean liberal in a bad sense. I mean the Western liberal tradition is now been reified into the meaning of the gospel, and the gospel loses its edge when it becomes equated with Western liberalism. Then we have Christians who believe that the greatest Christian position is a political party advocating for change. And in the United States, this happens with both the left and the right, because we only have real two options, so everything gets dramatized with the Republicans and the Democrats. But then uh, when Christians think that to be a real Christian you have to be a Democrat or you have to be a Republican, you begin to equate Christianity and the gospel with the Western liberal. Which one best represents the economic order that we need for our culture? Then the gospel has lost its edge, I think. So justice is an important term, and it's one of the dominating ideas in gospel discussions today. And I would like to say that uh, it's not adequate. But, yes, that's right. They said, they said party um, called Sojourners in the States. You've heard of them, no doubt? Sojourners, Jim Wallace? Sure. Yeah. Well, they're trying to change the voting by saying vote for the cause and not for the person. And that's really taking I'm 100% for Jim Wallace and Tim King, my student who's working with Jim Wallace on this. Uh, I'm 100% convinced that that idea is a great idea. I'm also 100% convinced that everything Jim Wallace does is connected to the Democratic Party. And I like Jim. And I know that Tim King, they, so in the United States, you cannot say Jim Wallace without thinking Democrats. That's a danger. And I've, I've asked Jim 
to be more critical of the Democratic Party so that the church has a more critical posture toward the political positions. But they have so many good things going for, you know, for that. So uh, I, 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 would, I, I plead with my students who are the sojourners crowd uh, to see that there is an alternative politic for Christians other than aligning with a partisan a party. So I, I'm for that. And I hope, I hope we do better. But right now, it's a mess. It's a sad mess. And I hope the young generation can extricate themselves. A young man named uh, Jonathan Merritt uh, has a new book called A Faith of Our Own in which he is trying to get out of the culture wars politically. He's a Southern Baptist. And it's nice to see a Southern Baptist advocating that. And he is suffering immensely because of his nonpartisan stance. So I'm for that. So, all right. A second view, a second term, I think, that has to be connected to the gospel or is today is justification. St. Augustine uh, really got this ball going. I won't say that Paul did, uh, because I think all these people have captured Paul. Uh, and I'd like to get behind some Augustine to Paul uh, in, a, in a way. But we have to start with Augustine and Martin Luther and the discovery of alien righteousness and John Calvin in Geneva. And this moves all the way then into a, a stream of thinking in Protestant Orthodoxy, to Jonathan Edwards, to Charles Finney, into the 20th century with people like D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, uh, the Four Spiritual Laws, and Bill Bright. Uh, this whole stream has essentially equated the gospel with the theme of justification by faith, experience of justification by faith. It shows up in things like the four spiritual laws. We see it in people like John Stott, John Piper, and the resurgence of young Calvinists in people like Mark Driscoll. I don't know if you heard of Greg Gilbert, uh, but he's in this crowd. Matt Chandler, maybe you've heard of Matt Chandler. These people all define the gospel by justification. And so they have simple, uh, as a result of this, they have simple uh, tracks that are used for evangelism, and I am fascinated by gospel tracks. At one time, I read every one of them I could get my hands on, and I am convinced that 100% of them are essentially connected to the doctrine of justification by faith as an experience of the new birth. It's essentially understanding the gospel as justification by faith. So the bridge diagram uh, is justification by faith ramped up in a Lutheran, post-Lutheran, Calvinist key with Jonathan Edwards in there somewhere in the background so that you get wrath of God. So when you have uh, the fundamental problem is the wrath of God, then the atonement starts to become the driver and it becomes propitiation. Do you use that term? There's a very famous Aussie who talked about this named Leon Morris, uh, who was very big on the word propitiation. And I'm proud to say he was a Chicago Cubs fan. 
And I had lunch with Leon Morris many days when he was teaching at Trinity. Um, but he was very big on understanding the gospel through the lens of penal substitution understood as propitiation. And this is all understanding the gospel essentially as justification by faith. And all you have to have is the book of Romans understood properly uh, through the uh, Romans road diagram, I suppose. I would like to read a little bit uh, from a manuscript uh, that is unpublished of mine about the gospel as understood by Billy Graham and John Stott. I, I love both Billy Graham and John Stott. And so if you ask me, did Billy Graham preach the gospel, I will not answer the question. Uh, how could anybody say he didn't? It would be foolish, except I think I'm saying that, so I won't. Um, and John Stott, I would never be critical of John Stott. I, I, I grew up on John Stott. But they have, I believe, formed the gospel in our consciousness. And there's a lot of critique of revivalism in our world today. And I don't know if you hear this, but in the United States, I hear a, a lot of critique of revivalism. And I've been digging through the sources on this in the last year. And I, can, I keep thinking, who are they going to criticize, really? They never quote anyone. Because uh, they just know that revivalism is the problem. They've scapegoated revivalism. And uh, I hear the critique. And they, if they do mention a name, it's always Charles Finney. But they've never read Charles Finney. I mean, Charles Finney wrote sermons that had 38 points in them. And he was a lawyer, and his, his theology is intense and robust. And they, you can't critique him for not having a, uh, a well-thought-out theology, even if you don't like it. Uh, and so I believe that the critique of revivalism is the critique of Billy Graham, but no one wants to critique Billy Graham. So I want to explain what I think Billy Graham means by the gospel, because I think this is what most people think the gospel is, in the Western evangelical world. In his own autobiography, aptly called Just As I Am, and if you know that hymn, is that sung in Australia by anyone? I have been in evangelistic services where they sang through all the hymns three times in order to coax people from their pews. And I had friends Literally, who every time they saw that Just As I Am was the invitation hymn, they got up and went forward immediately so they could get out of the service. <laughs> they would go to the back of the church and pray, the, pray to get saved and be outside playing for 30 minutes by the time I got out there because I wasn't about to get out of my pew and go forward and fake a conversion experience. I have friends that are pretty cool. Billy Graham, in his summary, says the third millennium presents the USA with more, with both moral and spiritual challenges in a world that, in spite of progress on so many fronts, continues to be sickened by the basic problems that come from the human heart. The trends of the culture make evangelism, he says, increasingly difficult. Pluralism of religions, lifestyles, morality, secularism, sensualism, and moral relativism are the terms Billy Graham used. 
The world is changing, he admits, and with it the methods of evangelism will change. But the message will not change, for it is timeless and meant for every generation. What is the message of Billy Graham? He yearns for people first to understand the message of Christ and accept it as their own. It is, first of all, a message about God as creator of humans as the image of God. And here are his words. God created us and loves us. I don't know if you know the story here. But Bill Bright, in 1957, was on a retreat and was told by a businessman that the gospel evangelicals and fundamentalists were preaching in the United States did not pass the standards of business practices because it began on a negative note that we are sinners. And so he said, Bill, you must begin on a positive note. And Bill Bright did. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. In my reading of the history of evangelism, he was the first one to begin the gospel with that note. And that is become the gospel for some people that God loves us. And that's the, that's the whole gospel. Billy Graham uh, was a part of the group with Bill Bright in the 1950s. And they were all connected to Hollywood Presbyterian Church and a great Sunday school teacher by the name of Henrietta Mears. I don't know if you've ever heard of Henrietta Mears. She's had a huge impact in American evangelicalism. And nobody tells the story about her because she's a woman. So they don't have to tell the story. They tell the story about Bill Bright, who basically learned the gospel at the hands of Henrietta Mears. Uh, So, um, anyway, God, God created us and loves us so that we may live in harmony and fellowship with him. And he said, our lives are never fulfilled and complete until his purpose becomes the foundation and center of our lives. Second, Billy Graham said, the message is about the human race and each one of us. And to quote his constant source of authority, Billy Graham would raise his Bible and says, The Bible says that we have been separated and alienated from God because we have willfully turned our backs on him and are determined to run our lives without him. Third, the gospel is the message declares that God still loves us. He yearns to forgive us and bring us back to himself He wants to fill our lives with meaning and purpose right now. Then he wants us to spend all eternity with him in heaven, free forever from the pain and sorrow and death of this world. Fourth, God has done everything possible to reconcile us to himself. He did this in a way that staggers our imagination, Billy said. How? In God's plan, by his death on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins Here's penal substitution at the core of the gospel, taking the judgment of God that we deserve upon himself when he died on the cross. Now by his resurrection from the dead, Christ has broken the bonds of death and opened the way to eternal life for us. Resurrection is connected to personal eternal life. That's typical in, uh, in Western evangelism. Billy Graham explains that the resurrection confirms that Jesus was who he said he was, the unique Son of God sent from heaven to save us from our sins. Now God freely offers us the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Finally, Billy Graham says this message is about our response. 
How do we respond and accept the message? Billy says, first, by confessing to God that we are sinners and in need of his forgiveness, then by repenting of our sins and with God's help turning from them, second, by committing our lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Enter the evangelist at the end of Billy Graham's autobiography, Just As I Am. Billy says this, I invite you now to bow your head and by a simple prayer of faith, open your heart to Jesus Christ. God receives us just as we are, no matter who we are or what we have done. We are saved only because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Billy Graham counsels the one who has prayed this prayer, adopts the person, says God adopts the person into the family, and he lives within us and will begin to change us from within. He concludes his book with this, Open Your Life to Christ Today. This is the book on the evangelical gospel. That is, I think, the evangelical gospel. It looks like this. God loves you. You are a sinner. God still loves you. Jesus paid the price for reconciliation with God. You must accept this message. You can respond. It is within your power. You must confess your sinfulness and repent, and you must commit your life to Christ. God does the saving, but humans do the responding. That's Billy Graham's gospel. He's preached that gospel for 50 or 60 years. Uh, his daughter is now preaching it in the United States, Ann Graham Lotz. And his son, Franklin Graham, looks like and sounds like uh, uh, his father and preaches like his father. But John Stott was considered by many a more sophisticated uh, evang- evangelical, and I think that would be true. He was the expositor who evangelized throughout the world. In many ways, he complimented Billy Graham. Stott's own conversion experience was similar to Billy Graham's response to a hellfire and brimstone preacher. He convinced Billy, this preacher, uh, that his faith was not yet deeply personal. And so Billy responded to uh, a gospel invitation with the hymn, Just As I Am, and Billy never stopped doing the same thing. John Stott's experience, though, uh, was the sort of still, uh, subtle presence of a gospel uh, declared in the private school in England called Rugby. He said, what brought me to Christ was a sense of defeat and of estrangement. And the astonishing news that the historic Christ offered to meet the very needs of which I was conscious. John Stott speaks of a man named Bash. I imagine he would pronounce it Bosch. Is that right? Is it Bosch? Named John Bridger. And he was dedicated to evangelism of young adults in England and their providential connection in the Lent term of 1938. Stott's own way of putting it was like this. So that night, at my bedside, I made the experiment of faith, and I opened the door to Christ. I saw no flash of lightning, heard no peals of thunder, felt no electric shock pass through my body. In fact, I had no emotional experience at all. I just crept into bed and went to sleep. But gradually, I grew into a clearer understanding and a firmer assurance of the salvation 
and lordship of Jesus Christ. If the classical theologians emphasized orthodox belief as inherent to gospel message, evangelicals have summoned people to the personal experience of redemption, demonstrable and witnessable. And this experience marks the evangelical Christian from all other dimensions of the church today. In Stott's own articulation of the gospel, seen, I think, best in his book called The Contemporary Christian, his central themes are not unlike those of Billy Graham. The tragedy that humans are sinful. He calls it dignity and depravity. The appeal of genuine freedom from guilt, self, and fear, and for being our true selves as God meant us to be. In my classes, when cell phones go off, students have three options. I get to answer it. They can stand up and sing a song. Or they buy donuts for the next session in class. (laughs) And we never even let them choose the first two. It's always donuts. Just thought I'd bring that up. I think John Stott's gospel is more robust than Billy Graham's. It summons everyone to a radical commitment, intellectually, morally, vocationally, Socially, politically, and globally, John Stott suffered at the hands of critique from the Martin Lloyd-Jones crowd in England uh, because of his commitment to uh, being the salt and the light in the world of justice as well as justification. And there is a pointed climax in John Stott's presentation of the gospel in the Lordship of Christ. But it produces a gospel, and it produces a gospel that outstrips the all too typical reductionism that finds fertile ground among American and Western revivalists. So I would like to summarize the Western evangelical gospel as God as creator, and this has really weird themes in the United States when you bring up the word creation. This creates So much problem for people. And if you could only be there and see what some people say about science. And I know I'm grateful for Graham and the Institute, but I wish he could save America from its problems on this one. God is loving but holy. Humans are made in God's image but are sinners under God's wrath. Jesus came to die in our place so that the wrath can be averted, so substitutionary atonement understood as propitiation. And all we have to do is believe that message by faith alone, and God will credit Christ's good standing to our side of the ledger, usually understood as justification in terms of double imputation. I don't know if that's language that you play with down here, but that is uh, the underwriting driver of much of this gospel, and then we can spend eternity with God in heaven. I think that this is a typical understanding of the gospel, of justification. I grew up on this gospel, and I grew up under many evangelistic sermons. Every sermon was an evangelistic sermon in my church, 
every sermon on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and even at prayer meeting on Wednesday night, ended with an invitation. I was hardened to respond to invitations because I was bombarded with invitations, and I knew the trick. And we, I grew up with preachers who used the finger snaps. Have you ever heard this? This is from Bob Jones, uh, where they learned this. And then they would re- start to increase the pace as the invitation got stronger. And it was very effective when you're a seven-year-old kid, convinced that if you don't respond to Christ tonight, you're going to spend eternity in hell because you're going to have a car accident on the way home. Because the preacher always had good stories of this. And uh, so... Resisting became quite the trick, and we learned uh, to start talking with one another at this time so that we didn't have to hear uh, what was going on. And I want to I look at this more because I believe that evangelism has been ruined for many people because of these manipulative ploys that are used in rhetorical approaches to evangelism. There are, of course, people who try to combine the two, justice and justification. Tim Keller, for instance, in New York City at the Presbyterian Church, uh, commonly says, true justification leads to justice. Now, this is wonderful, theologically. It is only wrong because so many people who believe in justification at the core of the gospel have never been involved with justice at all. This is the problem, and I've told Tim this. I say, Tim, I would believe your theology if more people who are so committed to justification were involved with justice. Well, it should. Well, you know, this is is theology that should do things, doesn't work very well, because it's not working. Well, the other side is Jim Wallace, who's already been brought up. Justice is a part of the gospel, but uh, Jim Wallace's struggle is to get it connected to the necessity of justification. And he believes in both of them, justice and justification. I've had phone conversations with Jim about this very topic. So, uh, I think we have to start over. I do not believe that the gospel that I've presented to you so far in evangelicalism, uh, either one of the gospels of justice or justification is what the New Testament would call the gospel. Nor do I think that either one of those gospels will get the full job done that is done by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. And I think it's because our gospel has been reduced to either justice or justification that we are not finding churches that are fully committed to the vision of the New Testament. So that's what the quest is on this understanding of the gospel. So I'd like to have a new start. And um, this is naive, I understand, but that's all right. Uh, we're, uh, theologians can be naive because we want to think big thoughts and see if good ideas can inspire a, a, a new church to operate in new ways. So I'd like to make a few points about where I think we need to start. Now we go till 1045, is that right? All right. Uh, I would like to say we have to start first in Judaism. That might surprise you. Jimmy Dunn was my professor of New Testament at the University of Nottingham when I was doing a PhD. 
And he encouraged us to begin, and this was in the late 19, well, this was 1981, that we all had to read Ed Sanders' new book called Paul, and this is what created the new perspective on Paul, Ed Sanders' book. And I asked Jimmy, as I was reading Ed Sanders' book, uh, about Judaism, and I asked him a question like this. I said, Do, did first century Jews have a theology? And Jimmy said something like this. No, they didn't have a theology as we have. They had instead a story. Well, that was a great answer that just I thought was a total non-answer. It doesn't quite answer my question. But as I've paid attention to this, it is the answer to that question. They didn't have a systematic theology. And I've said, to, I remember asking Jimmy, is there anybody who's written a theology of Judaism? And there was a book by a guy named, there is still a book by a guy named Ephraim Orbach, which tried to do for Judaism what Christians do for themselves of explaining what Jews believe. And so I read the book and it made no sense. It wasn't a soteriology, the way Christians do things. So I think Jimmy was right in saying, we have to begin, if we want to understand the gospel, in the Jewish world and not in our contemporary Christian world. And that means we have to also begin in the Old Testament. Which means we have to understand that Israel's theology is a storied theology rather than a systematic theology. What happens to the gospel when we actually read the Old Testament first? This has been sort of my quest for 10 years. And I've had some good starts and some bad starts. Uh, But I am convinced that we have to begin with Israel's story. Texts like Exodus 15, the horse and his rider. If we read this text, we see that this is at the bedrock of Old Testament faith. It's not so much a theology, though there's a theology implicit in it. It is a story of what God is doing in this world and inviting people to participate and to, me- to remember and to live into and let that story become a part of our story. I think of texts like Psalm 78 or Isaiah 5 about the vineyard of Daniel 9's story of what God is doing in the world and what he will do, or even a text like Nehemiah 9. In the New Testament, I believe that the New Testament begins with a genealogy because it is so committed to the gospel. And I know genealogies are horribly boring unless you love Israel's story. And then all of a sudden... Matthew 1, 1 through 17 is a beautiful text for evangelism. Now, I'm sure that there's very few people who have preached an evangelistic sermon. Have you, Stephen? Have you preached an evangel? Have you ever preached from the genealogy of Matthew? You did? At Trinity, when I was a professor, we were assigned difficult texts to preach. And Don Carson got to preach on the genealogy, and they gave me Revelation 12. 
And I discovered that uh, the dean's last name was Kaiser, that that was equivalent to Caesar. And so I added up his letters, and I had him at 664. (laughs) I said, he's close to the Antichrist. And I got in all sorts of trouble. And I thought I was ridiculing certain forms of interpretation, and they thought I was being really serious. But anyway, the genealogy. The genealogy of Matthew 1 is a gospel text because it says, here's a story that starts with Abraham, and it moves into David, and then it moves into the Babylonian captivity. And then Jesus is the climax or the fulfillment and resolution of this story. That is pure theology for a first century Jewish Christian. The the genealogy is. And that's the sort of theology that is told. I like the theology of Acts 7 in Stephen's speech. The way he explains the problem is to tell Israel's story coming to fruition in the rejection of Jesus and the rejection of him in Jesus-like categories as the fulfillment of a theme of rejection by the leaders in Israel's story. And Romans 9 through 11 maybe is more gospel than Romans 1 through 8. This doesn't preach well, but it is the story of Israel now being explained in light of the story of Christ and God being faithful to the story of Israel. It's very much a gospel text. And Revelation as a text is a very much a gospel text because it rehearses over and over the story of the Bible coming to completion in Jesus and what God is doing in the world. In other words, if we start where Jimmy Dunn said we should start, that Israel didn't have a theology, it had a story. This is not a false dichotomy. Uh, which is a simple trick that we can use. It's not that there isn't a theology and story, but it has to do with how we frame things. If we frame it through the story, we suddenly find ourselves one story after another in the Bible making sense. If we frame it as a theology, we can skip from Genesis 3 to Romans 3 because the rest of that stuff doesn't matter anymore. And that's what I found my students doing. There was no reason for the story of Israel to have any meaning in their theology because their theology was a soteriology that didn't need Israel's story. All right, so if we start with the, the Bible's gospel as a story and we, we realize uh, that everything gets reframed, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do in the King Jesus is reframe the understanding of the gospel through the lens of the Bible's story. All right, so uh, that's where I think we have our new start. I would like to say a few words before we have our first break on method in discussing the word gospel. I don't think very many people have asked the question, how do we define the gospel? Which texts do we go to? I believe we have a default mode, and the default mode is what I call a Soterian gospel. A Soterian gospel is that gospel that Billy Graham uh, and John Stott and Western evangelicals have defined as God loves you uh, or God is holy, depending on you're a tough guy or a nice guy. Uh, It depends which one of those you're going to emphasize. But it all comes down to the fact that Jesus is a means 
of personal salvation. And my friend David Fitch would see consumerism all over this gospel. We're using Jesus to bring about what we want in life. So the gospel then ultimately becomes a message about us. Uh, so we can blame Schleiermacher for doing this, but it's actually us uh, who are evangelicals who've really carried, uh, carried out this focus on us. The Soterian gospel then, I think, is our default mode on how to define the gospel. It is not thought about very intelligently. It's assumed that we've got this part of Christianity right. The Soterian gospel is a plan for personal salvation. It has no need for the story of Israel. So I often get criticized in blogs for not believing in salvation, which is really annoying because my colleague, Joel Willits, who teaches New Testament, said to me when he read King Jesus, he said, you have too much about salvation. I said, how odd that these other people think I have nothing about it. What book are you reading and what book are they reading? Here's the way I framed it, and I understand that the framing has gotten me in trouble. Story versus salvation. But my framing is this. There's a story that brings salvation versus a salvation for which there's no story. So it's not that it's either story or salvation. It's that whether we frame it through soteriology and the doctrine of salvation or we frame it through the story of Israel... This matters immensely for understanding the New Testament gospel text. I'm convinced that the apostolic gospel, and I, but I, and I, when I use the word apostolic, I mean Jesus and the apostles, was a story gospel that saved. And I believe that the alternative message is a salvation that needs no story. And I believe that uh, there are four layers of this. Uh, and, I, and I think this is a fair heuristic device for explaining things. At the bottom, depending, there's four elements. There's the story of Israel. There's the story of Jesus. There is the plan of salvation. And there is a method of persuasion. All right? Most of what I presented so far was on the gospel of evangelicalism is the story of personal salvation bundled into a method of persuasion. So this is deconstruction. Um, I believe that most people would equate evangelism with a, a form of rhetoric. A rhetoric of trying to convince people of something. Predominantly a rhetoric designed to try to make people feel guilty. Guilty enough that they'll cave in. And that's evangelism. So the method of persuasion has become foundational to understanding the personal plan of salvation. And I believe that these two on the top have actually crushed the story of Jesus and the story of Israel. 
so that we don't even need the story of Jesus. We don't need the story of Israel because we know the doctrine of salvation, the plan of salvation, and we've got it bundled into a rhetoric. This is huge for me. This is a huge conclusion. And I think it has uh, incredible implications. And what I'm suggesting is that we have rebundled the doctrine of salvation into a rhetorical formula in order to precipitate a crisis of experience that we call the born-again experience. No one was better at this than Jonathan Edwards. No one in history had more psychological introspectiveness, introspection, than Jonathan Edwards. Everybody criticizes Jonathan Edwards. Almost no one reads him. So... I'm going to ask the class that meets this week to read Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So at least you can say you've read it. Now let me say this again. Here's the way evangelism works in the Western world. Because it is designed rhetorically to precipitate a decision. Right? A decision about ourselves and our condition. It is designed like this. We start on a positive note. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or we're kind to people. And then we bring in from another world an angry God. The God of wrath and holiness. Rhetorically, this creates what social scientists call liminality. We are put into a posture or a disposition where we're between the God who loves us and the God who hates us. Because we are humans made in the image of God and we have sinned, we have put ourselves in jeopardy with God. That's called liminality. And the more intense you can create liminality, the more intense the experience of release will become. So rhetorical evangelism is designed to precipitate a response based upon liminality. All right? This can sound very manipulative, and it can be extraordinarily manipulative. And my college students for years told me experiences about youth retreats. That I never participated in. Our, we did a little bit of this, but it was back in the days of black and white TV, so, so things weren't as interesting. It was before Pleasantville's sex scene where things went into color. Do you, you know the movie? Okay. Huh? You saw it last night? It's a good movie? Okay. So, um, I don't know how we got there. Maybe I better change my posture. I might remember. Um, liminality. We create liminality uh, in youth ministry by getting kids into situations where they're isolated. It's called encapsulation. 
We encapsulate them socially, physically, spiritually, ideologically, so that they don't have cell phones, they don't have computers, they don't have TVs, and we've got them in a corner, and we turn the lights down, and we turn on certain kind of reverberating music, and then we tell really graphic stories, and then kids are manipulated emotionally, and they equate the emotional release of the experience with a new birth experience. All right? Now, if you don't think that's happening, it is all over the world. And there is a, this, this grew out of Charles Finney. Now we can blame Finney. Finney said if you create the right conditions, you can create conversions. Ten years later, he withdrew those statements in a second series of lectures that were not republished very often. And people continue to blame Finney uh, for what he did, and he, what he did, he did. But he backed off of his belief in, the, in our capacity to, that we should be manipulating people into creating decisions. What I'm trying to say is, this is what evangelism means to most people today. So this morning I was asked in the class, am I an evangelist? If that's what you mean, No. Because I think that we need to avoid manipulation at all costs. But I do believe that evangelism today is predominantly connected to a method of persuasion that is the rhetorical bundling of the doctrine of salvation. Now here's the amazing thing. Uh, And I want to get to this after the break on the method. No one in the New Testament ever preached the gospel the way evangelicals preach the gospel today. No one ever preached that message. No one ever said, God loves you and has a plan for your life. No one ever said, God is loving and God is holy and you've got yourself in an awful mess. This is powerful rhetoric that is designed to precipitate decisions. New Testament evangelism was not designed to precipitate decisions. It was designed... From that's called, I call that uh, persuasive rhetoric. New Testament rhetoric is declarative rhetoric, it announces something true about Jesus. So instead of trying to convince the audience that they're sinners, the New Testament gospel tried to declare who Jesus was. And if you read the sermons in the book of Acts, this is what they do. It's all about hermeneutics. Labeling Jesus with the right titles. If you give him the right titles, you've got him figured out. And if you figure him out existentially, you will be connected to that that label for Jesus. So... As a result of this form of evangelism, whereby the story of the Bible and the story of Jesus have collapsed under the load of the plan of personal salvation and the method of persuasion, the church has created a salvation culture instead of a gospel culture. A salvation culture is shaped by who's in and who's out. The mission of the church becomes getting people in. The pastoral problem arises out of a salvation culture of trying to get people who are already in, 
into a missional or discipleship mode. This is an endless struggle in the church. If you're a leader, you know what this is like. They're in, and I don't dare say they're not. But why don't they follow Jesus? Why don't they pray? Why don't they care? They don't need to care because they're in. Because that's the way we frame the gospel. Can you imagine, really, seriously, can you imagine someone saying to Paul or Peter or Jesus, Hey, I received him into my heart. Leave me alone. You imagine what Paul would say? Whoa. Or Peter? No one would say that to Jesus. I mean, that's just too scary to say it to him. I got you in my heart. Leave me alone. None of that sort of stuff. That sort of, that sort of problem cannot arise in what I would call a King Jesus gospel. But it can arise in a salvation culture because the thrust of a salvation gospel is getting people to make a decision and to enter. It's on the threshold. It's on the entrance. It's upon the decision. That's where the emphasis is in a Soterian gospel's evangelism. As a result, I believe that that Soterian gospel is deconstructing the church. It is deconstructing the church into a country club for believers. Entrance into the church is necessary. But what are we entering into? That's the question we have to ask. What does the gospel call us to enter into? All right. That's, uh, it's not, this is when we're supposed to have our first break. So I don't know how we have this. What do we do? We stop you and... Say it's time for um, tea or coffee. Um, you go out the um, doors and you'll find the um, hot water and all you need um, just out there. And you can be polite and let other people go in front of you. Or you can um, push them aside. <laughs> Good decision. <laughs> Scott, I have on my bookshelves. I used to teach uh, business. Uh, uh, and, I, and I have a book by James F. Engel, Consumer Behavior. Mm-hmm. And